You are listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 6th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken undertakes another Middle Eastern tour. Pakistanis prepare to vote, but can they vote for who they actually want to elect? And further additions to the list of things Parisians won't be able to do during the Paris Olympics. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Holly Dagres and Samira Shackle will discuss the day's big stories and we'll meet the team behind Danish label Gani. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Holly Dagres, non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and editor of Iran Source and Mina Source, and by Samira Shackle, editor of The New Humanist. Actually, not anymore. That shouldn't be there. You haven't been editor of The New Humanist for ages, have you? I just read things out. But you are a journalist and author of most recently Karachi Vice, Life and Death in a Contested City. Um, Hello to you both. Hello. It's nice to have you both back. It has been ages, so long in your case, Samira, that we think you're still editor of The New Humanist. (laughs) Um, I I, I did want to ask you both first in advance um, what you actually have been doing that has been keeping you off the Monocle Daily. Um, Holly, you've come furthest, so you can go first. Um, I live in Washington, D.C. now. Well, that'll explain it. Yeah, it's been about close to two years come um, April. And yeah, it's been an interesting time, especially on the Iran front. Never a dull moment. Um, How much more insane do you imagine Washington getting in the next, let's say, 10 months or so? Oh, it's going to be so, like, rainbows and butterflies and everything (laughs) in between. Uh, And Samira, what what have you been up to? Are you Uh, writing another book? Not yet. I've been writing uh, lots of articles, mostly for The Guardian. Uh, Haven't been anywhere as far afield as Washington. I was doing some reporting in Manchester last week. I just had a piece out about Glasgow and women being paid unequally there. Been dotting around the UK quite a bit, but yeah, just came from North London today. And the thing in Glasgow can be read already in The Guardian? Yes, it can. It can. It's about um, home carers in Glasgow taking on the council for equal pay. They've been chronically underpaid for years compared to men. Well, people can read that just as soon as they are done listening to this. And we will start with US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who is visiting the Middle East, though all things considered it would be surprising if he wasn't. Having already dropped in on Riyadh, he is in Cairo today, consulting with Egyptian officials who have also been working on a proposal that might end the ongoing fighting in Gaza. Blinken is then due to visit Qatar, also a party to the plan, and then travel to Israel tomorrow to pitch the plan to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. There is, however, little suggestion that Israel is presently much interested in compromise or that Hamas is minded to capitulate. Um, Holly, first of all, if I've added them up right, this is his fifth trip to the Middle East since October. Um, The previous four, uh, we'll all have noticed, have not managed to bring an end to hostilities. Do we imagine his luck is about to change? I mean, five and counting, am I right? Um, What is it, fifth time the charm, maybe? (laughs) Um, Well, actually, just as I was pulling up in the car, there was breaking news that the Qataris seem to have um, heard some positive feedback from from Hamas saying that they're, they're in agreement with the latest 
hostage deal swap. So now the next um, point of action is going to be Secretary of State Antony Blinken going to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu with us and seeing where it goes. But as you pointed out, um, this is taking long, a long time. And I just don't see the Netanyahu government stopping anytime soon with this war because their goal here is to oust Hamas and they really haven't reached it so far. Um, Samira, it has been observed many times before that, that Benjamin Netanyahu is being lent on by the United States to try and wind this in for a variety of reasons, and so far he has not. Um, has he dug himself uh, into kind of a trap in that he declared at the outset of this that the only acceptable goal uh, is the complete obliteration of Hamas? Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of an impossible goal, and I think if you wanted to... Um, ensure the continuation of Hamas or a Hamas-like organisation creating an entire generation of amputees and orphans is probably the best way to do it. So thinking thinking very long term, I mean, it, that's not going to work. And, and even in the immediate, it's obviously, I mean, it's clear that it's not a feasible strategy um, in any meaningful way. It's sort of flattening neighbourhoods with the aim of... Um, of destroying a, a movement which which is it, it's unrealistic as you say and i think um reading the the coverage about blinken's visit i'm struck by it, it's a sort of insane feeling of cognitive dissonance that that i think many people reading the news have had uh, throughout this whole period where you have um very reasonable statements coming from US officials and other international officials you know the only meaningful solution to this is a two state solution and palestinian rights and statehood and at the same time the the facts on the ground making that meaningfully impossible and netanyahu continually stating even like this week that he's not interested in that as a solution so it's sort of um it, it, you know, in the space of the same 600-word news article, you have, you know, US officials say that we must pursue Palestinian statehood. And then at the end, it's like Netanyahu says he's absolutely no interest in that. Um, so. Is there an amount here, though, Holly? And Samira is, is quite correct in that Netanyahu has never been enthusiastic about a two-state solution and appears now even less enthusiastic than he ever has been. But is there an element of the other interested parties here, Egypt, Qatar, the Saudis, the United States, all talking and thinking a bit past Benjamin Netanyahu, i.e. he's probably not going to be the guy we're going to have to deal with eventually? There does seem to be an assumption that as soon as this conflict is more or less over, uh, Netanyahu's goose might be cooked. Um, he is still extremely unpopular among Israelis, and he is well, and so he should. He was Prime Minister at the time. He should carry the can for the security failures that permitted October the 7th to happen. Well, I think you raise a valid point, but I think the whole con this ongoing war is tied to Netanyahu's political career, and there's more incentive for him to prolong it. And he essentially knows that the moment this war is over, his career is over. So I think if it's going to take months to prolong it, he will because he wants to keep himself in power. Um, just unpacking it in the context of regional dynamics, uh, the 
The United States has been um, thinking about the Abraham Accords. It was, of course, a Trump mm-hmm. administration era project. And before the October 7th attack, they were thinking about normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. And I think this is the, the carrot that they're trying to dangle. But the Saudis, being the custodians of two holy places of Islam, do not... And especially in this climate with the Arab streets being vehemently pro-Palestinian and anti-Israel cannot normalize under these circumstances. So uh, I, I think this is the carrot they're trying to dangle right now in front of Netanyahu. But again, going back to the original point, he's going to keep prolonging this for as long as it takes, even if that means that Israelis continue to protest, which is something noteworthy. Israelis are protesting the war because the hostages haven't come home. And additionally, they don't like the security situation for them. And of course, um, more importantly, is that this is a government that they don't want. A lot of Israelis Mm -hmm. were not happy with Netanyahu, and October 7th was a major security failure, and they do hold him responsible. I believe it was a majority of Israelis think he's the problem here in this context. Um, Samira, we don't have details yet uh, of this plan that is being cooked up, but does it strike you that anybody yet does have a clear idea of what not so much thinking about what a Palestinian state might look like in the long term, but what Gaza uh, will be or who will be running it in the short term. We can. There are things that I think we can see are not going to happen. Egypt, I think, for one, would not put up with the wholesale clearance of Gaza's population into the Sinai, much as though some elements in the Israeli government have spoken about that. I don't think there would be much appetite for the, the resettlement of Gaza uh, by Israeli settlers. Um, but no one seems to have any sort of actual positive ideas. Is like, here is what will happen. Gaza will obviously need to be rebuilt. It will need to be invested in. It will need to be governed and it will need to be policed. Yeah, I think that um, what international actors keep coming back to is the idea that a, a strengthened Palestinian authority could run Gaza as well. But it, again, it just all seems so... Um, abstract in the context where the majority of a 2.3 million strong population is displaced, where so many people are wounded and starving and, and actually what's being spoken about even in the context of these talks is is not a permanent ceasefire and moving to the next steps. It's humanitarian pauses and hostage releases before return to, to um, th- the same strategy that as we've discussed which seems like something of a hiding to nothing of, of completely destroying Hamas um, and I think also that that the perhaps with international pressure that idea of a, of a Palestinian authority um, running both territories maybe that will happen but but the current Israeli government and I think we should be clear that while of, of course the war is, is very much tied to Netanyahu and, and so on he's not acting in isolation. I mean, there are members of his government who are far more right-wing than Mm -hmm. him, members of his government who are, you know, very explicitly from and of extremist settler movements. And he's not just, um, you know dealing with pressure from the the left in Israel but also from from the right which is a very vocal might be a minority but which is very very vocal um and powerful so i think that that all of that makes it 
difficult to see. I, th- I don't think anyone is is meaningfully talking about the next stages because this the, the end of this stage is so far from clear, uh, and you know the the immediate concerns are, are so huge. The famine and um, you know mass death um, from starvation and disease, let alone from bombings. So it's it's difficult to to think practically. And again, just coming back to what I said before about that, you know the the statements from international actors on one hand and then the, the kind of completely opposite actions um, that are going on. It's difficult to see. Well, in a semi-related heartwarming development, China is to hold naval drills with Iran and Russia. This should not necessarily be interpreted as a preparation for confrontation. The three navies conducted something similar in the Gulf of Oman roughly this time last year. Things have, however, changed since then. For a start, Russia has fewer ships than it did. And more importantly, the vicinity of the Persian Gulf has recently become a battlefield of sorts as the United States and United Kingdom undertake a campaign of airstrikes aimed at persuading Iran's proxies in Yemen, the Houthis, to cease blazing away at passing shipping. Um, Holly, the official line, at least as Tehran uh, is trumpeting it, uh, is that these exercises will bolster regional security. Will they? I mean, I think it's just a nice talking point, wouldn't you say? <laughs> it, it seems like the sort of thing people always say in these circumstances. This will bolster regional security somehow. Yes, and um, I think it's noteworthy that Iran's been um, cozying up to Russia and China in recent years um, as part of their look towards East strategy. So in essence, when the United States withdrew from the JCPOA or Iran nuclear deal in 2018, they um, realized that they could not rely on the West because despite them not violating the deal, these sanctions were reimposed. And so they realized, okay, we need to look eastward. And so eastward has been a number of things. It's been arming Ukraine with um, Russia with um, Shahid or suicide drones in Ukraine. It's been joining BRICS. Mm-hmm. It's been joining the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Council and having a 25 year strategic deal with China, which we still to this day don't know exactly what that means. And so this is part of that look towards East strategy, um, getting closer to these two permanent members of the UN Security Council. Well, indeed so. Um, What interests me about this apparent triumvirate, Samira, is you can easily see where Russia and Iran's interests are in this arrangement. But I'm struggling to see what is in it for China, which is a reasonably serious country, a, a rising power either actually or on track to become Earth's biggest economy, um, why would it want to ally itself so closely with two malfunctioning pariah states? <laughs> what a nice way of putting it. Uh, it's a good question, I think. Um, I think there's this idea maybe of um, forming blocks of power outside of, of the West. And um, as, as Holly says, uh, I think that China is also genuinely worried about shipping routes. And, you know, obviously, as, as you mentioned, the, the Persian Gulf has been the centre of, of tension. Um, I think China hasn't formally said anything about the, the Houthi strikes on um, on ships, attacks on ships and, and so on. But um, they do want Iranian assistance in um, reining in that action. So maybe, I mean, maybe there's a practical 
element there with this specific instance. But uh, yeah, it's a good question. Well, wouldn't it actually make more sense, uh, Holly, if China was joining the United Kingdom and the United States in conducting airstrikes against the Houthis? Because China arguably has more of an interest in this than either of those countries. 60% of China's exports to Europe go through the Suez Canal. Absolutely. And I think the October events of October 7th um, but initially, China was like, oh, that's not our problem. But then they realized, actually, there's a lot more to it. And so ever since, they've been really concerned about what's been happening in the Red Sea, the flow of oil. And um, there was a Reuters exclusive, I think it was just a week ago, and they were basically telling the Houthis and the Iranians, hey, knock it off or else we're going to have a talking. And so I think they're recognizing that this is an important issue that impacts their economy. And just to unpack your earlier question, um, China has an invested interest in playing mediator here because it does want to have a seat at the table like the United States, and it does. And they've been playing a lot of roles in the region for the past couple of years. Just about a year ago, we saw the Saudi-Iran deal that China brokered, which was a normalization between two countries that had ended ties in 2016 after um, Iranian hardliners had stormed the consulates in Tehran and Mashhad after the execution of Shia cleric Nimal Nimr. Mm-hmm. So they've been trying really hard to play this Middle East peace broker. And um, there's a lot of chatter these days also that maybe China should get more involved in some of these regional issues as well. Well, there's a related question, uh, Samira, to the one about what's in this for China, which is what is in this for the other countries which are said, at least by Iranian uh, officialdom, to have been invited to observe these exercises. And among those countries are Pakistan, of which more shortly, India, Brazil, South Africa, et al. Um, These are significant, obviously, but broadly non-aligned countries who have drifted towards the Russia-China axis in the last couple of years noticeably. Again, though, what's in it for them? Do these countries just not see the West as the winning team anymore, or do they resent the fact that they have, in previous decades, been ignored and or exploited by the West? What is actually going on there? I think all of the above. And, uh, you know, China has been engaged in an absolutely massive international effort to to bring lots of countries uh, broadly in the global south um, into its orbit. I mean, the the kind of mass scale um, investment of the Belt and Road Initiative, you can see it in all over Africa and South Asia, um, you know, in Pakistan, where I spent quite a lot of time, there's... Chinese flags flying places, there's huge numbers of Chinese workers coming to build infrastructure. And that's happening all over, you know, not just Pakistan and uh, Bangladesh or Sri Lanka, but also in Africa and some countries in Latin America. And so there, there is a, a very, very meaningful um, relationship building there away from and separate to the West, where China will invest in trade and infrastructure without expecting guarantees on human rights and political influence in quite the same way that the that the West has. So it's more transactional. And obviously there is political influence in other ways, but it's more, it's more transactional and I think benefits um, certainly the leaders of, of lots of those countries that might not have the money to invest. So I think 
that is part of the drift towards China and a very, very strong incentive to be allied with that superpower and, and not the not the Western ones. Well, on the subject of Pakistan, and even amidst a year riddled with consequential elections and even by the eventful standards of Pakistani elections, Pakistan's election on Thursday will be both consequential and eventful. A national parliament will be chosen, as will all four provincial governments. The two leading candidates to be the next Prime Minister are Nawaz Sharif, who has had three previous goes at it, which have ended respectively in resignation, overthrow and disqualification, and Bilawal Bhutto Zadari, whose mother was Prime Minister and whose father and one grandfather were President. However, the key figure in this election will not be formally competing as he's in prison, former Prime Minister and cricketer Imran Khan. Um, Samira, first of all, this being very much your area, could you please remind us all what presently the deal is with Imran Khan? Um, well, Imran Khan is currently in prison. I realise there's a long version yeah, of a short there's, there's version. There's a long version. I'll try, and, I'll try and give you the short one. So Imran Khan was ousted from power in 2022 when he basically fell out of favour with the military. Um, he has since then, there's been a caretaker um, government in place and Imran Khan has been um, sort of relentlessly legally pursued. It's not uncommon for mm-hmm. former Pakistani prime ministers to go to prison. In I, fact, I'm, it's extremely common. I'm I would genuinely say. astonished yeah. anybody wants the job. Yeah, a, te- a terrible it job. It never real, ends well. Real poison chalice. So you know, <laughs> Nawaz Sharif, who's currently the front runner, runner to win, uh, was in fact in prison on corruption charges mm-hmm. and banned for life from standing until about a month ago when he was pardoned and the lifetime ban was was lifted. So that is part of the deal but even in that context it the 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 way that Imran Khan has been pursued has been extraordinary and I say that as no fan of Imran Khan he's got something like 180 pending charges against him he's been sentenced um, just a couple of weeks ago maybe maybe it was last week or the week before um, over leaking state secrets and it was uh, you know almost custom designed to be not a fair trial. It was a makeshift court convened in the prison. His own defence team wasn't allowed to go. He was given um, state prosecutors. It was the public were blocked. Um, you know, it's 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 a bit of a farce. It's like it's not even trying to look genuine. Some of the charges against him may be genuine. He's definitely incited um, political unrest. He's not, not gone quietly and not sought um, conciliation or... Um, you know, stability, let's say, but it, it's it's really been extraordinary. And I think that is the the defining um, fact of this election, as you say. And it, it's not just limited to Imran Khan, who's currently in prison serving various concurrent and consecutive sentences and waiting for hundreds of other cases to, to come to, to, to fruition. But it's also the party... Um, his party, the PTI, have been um, blocked from campaigning. They've had the election logo changed, which might sound uh, minor, but they've got a very iconic logo of a cricket bat. And the, mm-hmm. But the logo is really important on a polling card because there's very, very high illiteracy in, in Pakistan. So people need to see the logo to know who they're voting for. Um, all of these things make it not a fair election um, to an even greater degree than the last one, which was a very unfair election in the PTI's favour because they were the military's favoured party in the last election. You know, other parties' um, rallies were not allowed to be on air. Um, there were, you know, sort of, again, um, harassment of, of the politicians and the other parties who are now the front runners to win. So I think it's it's just been a bit of a 
it's been a race to the bottom in a country that hasn't had a very strong civilian democracy, to put it mildly, at all in its history. It's been um, sort of getting less and less democratic. And I think that people are just increasingly losing faith, what little faith they had in the system. Well, Holly, as Samira correctly says, the prime ministership of Pakistan is a precarious perch at the best of times. I think I'm right in saying, Samira, correct me if I'm wrong, that since the state was founded, nobody has actually completed a a, a solid five-year term as prime minister. Um, In this particular circumstance, though, given that apparently the most popular politician in the country is in prison and has fairly clearly been elbowed out of this election, how solid a mandate is whoever wins this thing going to have? I mean, I I think when I was reading about the story, I just thought of this like common Middle Eastern trope about elections. It's between bad or worse. (laughs) And so... um, when I and it's become abundantly clear um, that Sh- Nawaz Sharif is being handed a silver platter, platter doing instead. He was in um, exile in London for years, and he was waiting for more charges. He he should have been sentenced upon arrival for for more charges, from my understanding. And he came in with no issue at all. Now only to be running an election. So that means that he's been given the blessing, and I think he's going to be winning this election potentially based off that alone. Even with me not having that background. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is there any um, chance that Sharif will not be Prime Minister for the fourth time, Samira? Because it, it is hard to quite under... Well, it, it's hard to get tremendously excited about his primary opponent. Uh, this is the latest uh, of the Butos to have mm-hmm. stepped up, to have, have had a shot at it. And with all due respect to the suffering that family has themselves um, suffered while attempting to hold on to power in Pakistan, it has taken a not inconsiderable toll uh, on the Bhutos. Um, who are still their people in Pakistan? Who are the people who have not wearied of this this born-to-rule dynasty? Um, well, I think that's their problem. So the Nawaz Sharif's party is... Um, so it's very regional politics in in Pakistan. So, so they're from um, uh, the Punjab, which is the biggest, mm-hmm. most populous province, and it's really difficult to win uh, any national election in Pakistan without winning in Punjab. And it's just really difficult for the PPP, which is the Bhutto's party, to win in Punjab. Um, but yeah, they've they've really lost a lot of support, and and they. Uh, they retained support in the um, in Sindh, which is the province that they're from, that their families that their family is from, uh, which contains Karachi, which is a really big city. But in the last election, they've they've just been hemorrhaging support to Imran Khan's party, which really speaks to the young urban middle class in mm-hmm. a way that these political dynasties just don't. Um, and so, if you're relying on that kind of feudal vote, it doesn't work if you're not from the most populous province. And I think they've really struggled, um, the Bhutto's party, the PPP, to to break through with um, young urban people who make up the like an absolutely massive part of the, the voting picture. Um, I think there might be very low turnout comparatively. Mm-hmm. I think um, I haven't been in Pakistan for this election campaign, but just speaking to, to friends and family there, uh, I think it's been a generally more muted affair. So elections are a big deal in Pakistan. There's like massive rallies. There's a big population, um, a population that is often quite underemployed and therefore available for, <laughs> for rallies. But, you know, at, at this point, there's just been um, 
even as you as you opened this segment saying in the in the in the unstable context of Pakistani politics, it's been particularly unstable. Um, even in the context of elections that have increasingly been subject to censorship and not free and fair campaigning and so on, it's been even worse um, than than prior years. And it's also a population that's suffering enormously from economic crisis. It, in, inflation reached 40% at one point last year. There's um, businesses failing and shuttered, people struggling to eat, very harsh terms from an IMF bailout. And this economic crisis has built under three different governments. So it's not like any one party is has their hands cleaned from it. So I think it's a demoralised population and I wouldn't be surprised if the turnout's lower than it has been. Well, let's move along to an altogether more trivial hardship. A recurring theme of the Daily of Late has been noting the accelerating panic of Parisians as the Olympic torch bears down upon their city. We have noted previously the harumphing and shrugging prompted by fears of transport malfunction, terrorism, overcrowding, unfinished venues and better bugs, to which we may now add inability to move house and non-delivery of parcels. Parisian officials have counselled that attempting to move house or receive parcels for the duration of the Olympics and indeed Paralympics, i.e. from July 24th to September 8th, would be ill-advised. This is a particular concern for residents anticipating the arrival of fresh hooped shirts or a new accordion. Um, it's, It's tempting to say, or tempting to remind them, Holly, that you know, in London where there aren't Olympics, you can't get a parcel delivered. But nonetheless, um, is there anything really unusual about this Parisian angst or is is this just what all shortly-to-be Olympic cities put themselves through? London certainly did in 2012. That's a good one to ask. I mean, just listening to you unpack some of the drama Paris has to begin with, bedbugs being one of the viral stories that happened once, was that I was thinking how French at this point hearing about the parcels. But, um, you know, I was thinking that um, and we have the World Cup and coming up mm-hmm. in the United States years from now. And even I, I can't imagine an American city being told, hey, um, you can't get Amazon for like some <laughs> weeks. Like I, I could see Americans like um, flipping cars over that. <laughs> so just to think that, oh, well, in Paris, this is going to be like almost a three month thing. But in, in, but in Paris, people flip cars over anyway. That's a good it's point. Just, just what they do. It should be an exhibition yes. sport. I mean, yeah, revolution and protests is in their blood. So yeah, maybe that's what they should be including in the Olympics is flipping cars. Um, but Samir, anybody who has been in Paris uh, during approximately this time of year will understand that there's nobody there anyway. That's exactly what I was about to say. They all go away for August anyway don't they which I find uh, absolutely aspirational I have to say we're very very <laughs> jealous of that as a, as a national culture <laughs> I mean but Holly do they have some grounds for complaint the doubling of metro fares during the games seems a bit ripe um, they were at one point in, in a, a initial fit of utopian zeal going to be free, in fact, for the duration of the Games. But they have gone in the other direction, perhaps indeed realising that actually there's not going to be anybody from Paris here anyway. Um, And again, what should also be uh, an exhibition sport at the Paris Olympics, I suppose, is frantically overcharging tourists. 
Yeah, and I mean, I think they're also worried about capacity, like the overflowing. But if they make things more expensive, it's like supply demand as well. So, I, I mean, I think you raise a valid point. And as an American, I'm very jealous that we hardly even get vacation. So, <laughs> I mean, the Brits complain about vacation. The French get a whole month off. So it, it makes us Americans have a lot of FOMO. Well, exactly. Americans don't get holidays. British people don't get parcels delivered, um, which did prompt me to wonder, Samira. And again, comparing, contrasting for example, a country like France with a country like Pakistan, um, which has actual problems, yeah. as, as, as we've been discussing. And I'm asking this about the French case in particular, because I think President Emmanuel Macron has gone quite close to this on a couple of occasions. And I would not be surprised if at some point before he has to leave office, he just does it. Would it be a great transformative thing, do you think, for modern advanced democracies if the leader of just one of them addressed his people and said, Christ alive, would you people quit whinging? <laughs> that would be brave. There would be, be tyres on fire on the Champs-Élysées. But again, there usually are anyway. Yeah. What does he have to lose? Uh, Holly Dagres and Samira Shackle, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show, Ghani is one of Denmark's leading fashion brands and naturally it has long played a big heart big part, rather, in Copenhagen Fashion Week. This year, however, it took a slightly different tack to the event, which wrapped up last week. Instead of showing its own work, Gani created a platform called New Talent, which saw the brand mentor early career designers such as Nicholas Skovgaard, Sarah Brunhuber, Elektra Rothschild. Gani also hosted an exhibition at Copenhagen's Nikolai Art Gallery, spotlighting emerging creatives. Monocle's design editor Nick Monis caught up with Gani's creative director, Ditty Restrup, and found at Nikolai Refstrop at their studio in Copenhagen. Nick started by asking them who they have in mind when they design a new collection. The brand is built around this Copenhagen girl, and we've always kind of debated who she is, actually, because you go to Paris or you go to L.A. or you go to New York and you look at these amazing personalities that in some ways outperform the Copenhagen girl. But then ultimately we came to conclude that it's more about kind of, it's more about empowerment, it's more about kind of, gender equality, it's more about kind of the, the safety and the convenience of living in Copenhagen, right, that ultimately empowers the Copenhagen girl. And it's that kind of spirit that we've always been designing for. And it has always been talking about how she never kind of, it couldn't be the tail wagging the dog, right? It could never be like the cloth wearing the girl. It always had to be the girl wearing the cloth. So we wanted to kind of support that Copenhagen girl in her empowerment, right? So that was also always naturally what we did. And then as uh, Stid is talking about, again, it's always been about collaboration or including other people or relying on other people. Bear in mind, we came into this industry as outsiders. So we were not supermodel photographers, designers from a great school or anything like that. So for a while, we were very much on our own. And we had this very flat hierarchy we had this, Dida loves a good game of football. And if you do that, you understand that you rely as much on your goalie as, as your defense and, and the attack, right? It's, it's a team effort. So that was always part of it. So in that sense, we've been always looking outside and inside for inspiration. So, yeah, Dida is trying to say it's, it's been an organic effort uh, always. And I guess I'm, I'm curious that, you know, you talk about the link between Ghani and, and Copenhagen and, and the influence that a city can have on the work that you're doing or the, the people that you're surrounded by. But also, 
my initial perception the first time I came to Copenhagen 10 years ago, it's like this is going to be sleek and bland and very, you know, it's going to be navies and blacks and like very, very pared back. And, and the reality is you get here and there's color and there's texture. Is that what was, has informed the development of your brand as well? Because when I, when I think of Ghani, I'm also thinking of like playfulness and color and pattern. Is, is that, does that come from the people that you're surrounded by? For sure. And I think that was actually also why we did Ghani. It was exactly because everyone, when I was traveling, we were traveling, people would be like, oh, so you're from Copenhagen. So you would be very, very androgynous or very bohemian. And I, I couldn't recognize myself or the girls or the people I was surrounded by. So I thought, okay, there is a different story to tell. We need to do this brand because I feel like the world haven't seen what we, we can also be. I'm curious as well. There's almost like a, a soft power element to this. What role can, and maybe Nicola, this is one for you, but what role can a fashion brand play in shaping the identity of a, of a city and of people? So we've gone kind of rogue here, but you've hit something with me and I really like this. Like, what role can Ghani play in the way that people perceive Copenhagen and, and Denmark more broadly? It's a mutual relationship, right? I mean, we've always talked a lot about how we owe it big time to René Redzebi from Norma or Bjarke Ingels from BIG or kind of or people from the movie industry. We all kind of supported each other without knowing each other necessarily in kind of putting Copenhagen on the map, right? And we've been kind of living off of the vibe that's been coming out of Copenhagen for the past 15 years or so, but also contributing to that. Did in particular... I think it designing for this Copenhagen girl that was also there, that wasn't the leftover bohemian style that was there at that moment, or the androgynous, uptight, basic look that you also alluded to. So we supported that Copenhagen girl and kind of bringing that side out. But it's a mutual effort. It's like an organism, right? You couldn't do it on your own. And then bear in mind always that fashion is a powerful medium. It talks to us all, literally all of us wear clothes like, 99% of us. <laughs> so, Sometimes we yeah, ask, yeah, yeah. For, the, for the record, yeah. And uh, it's, it's something we all relate to, and it's, it's so silly, but I mean, even the length of a skirt like signals tons of information. You couldn't even put it in writing, right, about who you are or what you're trying to tell. It's ridiculous sometimes, but it does, right? It's an extremely powerful tool. And that is why fashion is still so It's interesting to me. And it's also why we're trying to do... For me, it's really important that when we design, that we think about the people behind. Because sometimes, you know, when you look at people, for me, it's so important that you can express yourself with fashion and tell your own story. So it's not, as Nicola is saying with the dog, but I would even say, like, it's not the outfit that is the thing you see, but it's actually the person behind. Everyone knows Danny Girl. How do you empower people to do that, to take your work and put their own spin on it? Um, I think the way we were trying to work with a lot of different people across industries. And it has always been about, when, when we started with social media, everyone has always talked about, oh, did you pay people? or, or how? But actually we didn't. And we always just tried to find the, the people that we were inspired by. So it wouldn't matter if it was someone who had like 300 followers or 1 million. So... For us, it was important that it was people who was communicating their own vision of Ghani. Nick Monice at the Ghani studio in Copenhagen. That's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Holly Dagres and Samira Shackle. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineers were Tamsin Howard and Lily Austin.
We'll raise up our glasses against evil forces singing whiskey for my men, beer for my and playing us out, Toby Keith, who has died at the age of 62. The Oklahoma-born oil-filled roughneck-turned-singer was one of the biggest stars in country music. Keith frequently revelled in a persona of belligerent patriotism, topping the country charts in late 2001 with courtesy of the Red, White and Blue, which promised exemplary revenge upon America's foes and feuding with the then Dixie Chicks. But Toby Keith's songbook and his general outlook were more nuanced than either of those endeavours suggested. At his best, he channelled the deft common touch, bleary wit and self-mocking braggadocio of the country singers that inspired him, very much including Willie Nelson, with whom Toby Keith duetted on Beer For My Horses. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.